0: Welcome to The Campfire, I am your host Matthias Olsson. Today I'm joined by Rune Jana Rasmussen, a Danish historian of religion and a specialist on Nordic animism and shamanism. As we'll hear in our conversation, Rune doesn't necessarily believe that animism belongs in the dusty cabinets of the ancient history museum of humanity but rather wants to explore how we can reconnect with an animistic worldview in order to move forward with a profound understanding of the interconnected nature of the biosphere as a way of moving past climate catastrophe and into planetary healing. Before we get to the show, please allow me to express my deep gratitude to our sponsors. Thank you so much, Namaste Foundation, for your support. Also... I'd like to welcome our first executive producer-level patron, Jen Ju. Thank you so much for your generous contributions. At the moment of this recording, there are 47 members in our Patreon family who make it possible for me and my colleagues to keep these campfire projects moving ahead. I'd now like to mention a few of them by name. September Larson, Magnus Nodelik. Camilla Freiberg, Stellan Kristiansson, and Nicole Alger. To you guys and the rest of the patrons, thank you so much. I'm joined today around the campfire uh, by Rune Jarno Rasmussen. Who is a historian um, and an expert on animism and Nordic sh- shamanism, and also I would say uh, an environmental activist? Uh, welcome to the Campfire Podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, Th- did I pronounce your name correctly?
1: Yeah, Rune uh, Jarno Rasmussen in my own language. I just call myself Rune in English mostly.
0: That's It's pretty cool that you're, or it's pretty fitting that the English pronunciation of your name is Rune, such as the old Norse pagan letters.
1: Yeah, I I also think it's kind of cool, actually. (laughs) I I used to get these back in the day when we were like, I don't know if you remember, when people were like backpacking and all that stuff. I remember people being like, dude, so your parents were into dungeons and dragons and stuff. (laughs) But... (laughs)
0: <laughs> and were they? <laughs> is that? Nah, no. not particularly. No. <laughs> but but the name. I mean, the, the name comes. Does it? Ha- is there an actual connection between your name and the the
1: what we see oh, yeah. on the
0: carved in the stones?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It, it does means. It does mean uh rune uh, like a runic letter, mm. uh, and and it is. Uh, it is an ancient name. You do you do find it uh, back in in. Uh, for instance, you do find that name on runic inscriptions. Mm. <clears throat> I'm not actually sure what the etymological root of the the name is. It might actually be runir, one that runes, mm-hmm. one that perhaps makes runic singing or something like that but but I'm actually not I haven't actually mm. checked that um detail
0: but anyway it's quite fitting let's just leave it at that <laughs> for the conversation <laughs> today um all right so we're going to be talking a lot about animism and animism in the modern day and how, how like we think of animism or at least I do as something very ancient and and old and so how could that possibly have any connection with the modern day world mm-hmm. uh, but before we get into that I'd like for us to just um, define what is animism for maybe somebody that has a sense of what it is but doesn't know 100% what's your definition?
1: Um, I follow the British scholar Graham Harvey uh, and I don't remember his exact wording but <laughs> the, the basic <laughs> thing is that animism is that there are <clears throat> other persons in the world than just human persons and that it's a good idea to uh, treat them in kind and respect, or have built kind and respectful relations to them. That's basically what animism is. People sometimes tend to say that animism is the idea that everything is animated, inhabited by spirit or personality and something like that, and that's a little bit it's a little bit uh, clumsy, actually, as as a uh, definition of animism. It's perhaps it's not necessarily completely incorrect, but in, it's a little bit more uh, it's a little bit more culture specific and asymmetrical than that. In 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 a given culture, you will find <clears throat> that certain uh, parts of reality or certain beings in the landscape are uh, m- more important in these local animisms than animisms than others. Uh, so, uh, so, and that's why today most people would probably say, say like Graham Harvey, that animism is the idea that there is other persons than just human persons in the world, and that we should treat them in kind and respectful ways.
0: <laughs> so, like a lake. Could be such a person or a mountain or yeah or exactly gravel on exactly. the road yeah
1: yeah and 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 if you are living somewhere in Sweden where there are a lot of lakes, then you might find that some lakes are uh, a little bit more personal than others, and perhaps some of them are dangerous persons, where uh, others are perhaps kinder persons, you know. Mm. So it's a little bit asymmetrical like that. It's it's something that is generated through human culture. Mm. In the same way as human culture, the way that we show respect and kindness towards each other in different human situations is culturally different. Mm. In some uh some situations uh alcohol is very detrimental to human culture mm. in other situations it's the the water of life yeah. uh or whatever you know and <laughs> and uh, uh and that's so there are different human culture is different in different locations and so is animist culture mm. so different ways of relating respectfully to or engaging the world respectfully. Mm. Cool. Before we dive
0: in uh, to this topic uh, in the deep end of the pool, uh, I'd love to just get a sense of what got you into Nordic shamanism and animism in the first place. Like, can you give like a little picture of uh, rune as a child, or like how how did that come about, or how what's your beginning into this?
1: Yeah, I think I think I was always sort of attracted to these kind of things. Um, like intuitively. And uh, I come from, uh, my family background uh, is uh, um, rooted in this, a, a particularly a Danish form of Christianity, which is called Grundvedianism, mm. uh, and which is actually very focused on the Nordic prehistory. So grundvedian uh Christians they used to consider actually the elder edda the old Norse viking poetry on par with the old testament as something that was important for Scandinavian peoples so i come from, uh, from my family background even though we weren't particularly christian in my childhood home but 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 um but the the kind of christianity that that my family comes from uh is that kind of you could almost say Nordicist christianity um and so that's a little bit my background. So through my university, I was, I started being interested in in, uh, in Nordic Nordic religion. Uh, however, I got kind of disillusioned at some point because uh, the thing is that what we know about pre-Christian Nordic religion is very flawed. Uh, by the fact that it's written down some centuries after the religion was actually strong uh, mm. in Scandinavia. And that means that 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 is actually very difficult to know something mm. about it, properly know something. And I wanted to actually learn from actual live religious knowledge. So mm. I actually shifted my perspective in university and started looking at Afro, uh, Afro-Atlantic Afro religions, so a kind of voodoo, santeria, uh, these things, and I did my um, my PhD on an Afro-Brazilian religion called Candomblé, mm. uh, and I was I was using this new animist anthropology to understand how these people in this Afro-Brazilian religion, uh, how they are basically allowing their animist tradition or enabling their animist tradition to continue to live on and reinvent itself into our modern age by building what you could almost call safe spaces of reality mm. safe animist safe spaces in modern reality mm. and that enables them to have these very live and very dynamic uh, religiosities where uh, where there there is still this sort of you could almost say say olympian like or asgard like Uh, pantheon of different deities where there's a uh, there's a love goddess with flowers in her hair and big (laughs) boobies and there's a war god with sword and a thunder god with a big axe and stuff (laughs) like that so 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 they still have this this kind of religion and it's very much alive and it's not like it's you can be a a a pastor or no, no no Perhaps not a pastor. You could be <laughs> a school teacher or a doctor or a, you know, pop star or a, yeah, and have this very polytheist, very uh, pagan-looking religion, and that's quite normal. Mm. So, <clears throat> so I, I kind of, and I did this research in in the Afro-Brazilian religion in the way where I uh, used the contemporary anthropology that allows you to learn from those people rather than to sort of patronizingly learn about them if you can see the difference yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I feel very much that my because because we have this kind of anthropology available today i feel that this that my university uh, education has allowed me to step in and actually learn from these you know "Quote unquote voodoo priestesses: mm. How to think with uh, modernity and how to think with traditional culture, mm. and that's basically what I'm trying to uh, to apply to our own uh, North European cultural heritage. To think like think like a, a, a candomblé priestess mm. about our uh, our cultural heritage, mm. um, and this is sometimes it's probably rather visible in." In, uh, in what I'm saying on, for instance, on my YouTube channel or something like that. Mm. Uh, but, but most of the time, it's, it's deeper. It's the way that they produce knowledge as a response to uh, uh, modernity mm. that, that, that I'm, uh, like, fundamentally informed by.
0: Mm. Cool. So, let's, I mean, let's imagine, if we go back 10,000 years and beyond, into the like deep chambers of uh, human history. Um, at least my understanding is that pretty much everyone was an animist back then. I mean, w- we don't know. We can't go back in time and, and ask around. But um, f- from what I've gathered, that seems to be the, um, the information that we have, that people were animists. Um, and if we look at... Uh, I mean, pretty much every everybody today is—you could might call them an inanimist. Where, uh, from the time of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century, and, and onwards to today, we've sort of been informed by uh, the work of thinkers like Rene Descartes and Isaac Newton, and we've been um, enlightened, and we've inherited this sort of mechanistic view of the universe as something. Um, I mean, the, the Earth is just matter, and the universe is just matter and forces. Um, so, you, I mean, that's pretty much um, a definition of inanimism. Um, but it's it feels like it's beginning to ring false with the rise of um, climate change and different em- environmental struggles. And, and it, I, I feel like we need a new era of enlightenment, uh, and I feel that uh, you are uh, a brother in this uh, quest. How would you, how would you describe such a new uh, enlightenment, and, and how it's informed,
1: and how it could move forward? The complex of understanding the world that we, that I mostly call modernity, defined by rationalism and enlightenment and these things, mm. uh, that has been defined by the wish to to uh, distinguish two spheres of reality. One which is meaning and subjectivity and humanity, and and that's only inside our human minds, only Mm. inside our human brains. And then one that's absolutely detached from it, which is dead exterior Mm. matter, resources. The world is basically resource storage. storage. And, uh, And I think, and many today think that uh, this idea that the world is fundamentally dead is paradoxically dispro- disproving itself because it actually kills the world. Yeah. <laughs> so it it proves that our ideas from the world are not d- detached from the world. You know, mm. yeah. it's actually impacting the world in very very real senses. So uh, and. And uh, so today, you see on on the internet, when the, I feel there's almost like a bubbling, boiling of uh, intelligence and and people in all kinds of ways who are trying to think ourselves into uh, into uh, the kinds of transformation that environmental collapse uh, is is facing humanity with. Um, and you find it from all corners of the world, from Africa, you know, South America, Australia. There are people who are moving in this space between indigenous knowledge and uh, transformation, and how to bring this into into our age, basically. Mm. Um, and um, when so, and so, I think a lot of people think like you that we need a new transformation or of sorts. Um, um uh, i probably yeah a new, a new myth, mythology in the... to
0: inform excuse me uh, like a new mythology to to inform yes us. yeah because yeah, they, the, new... the, yeah. The, 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 the current story is basically um yeah like charles eisenstein one of my big gurus in life uh says that we, we've been for a long time now in a sort of a story of separation and mm-hmm. uh perhaps we're heading into a story of interbeing. So, uh, but, and now yeah. that we're like sort of in between stories a little bit. Yeah. We, we, and,
1: and we're seeing an, exactly that point, that, that stories, that we need different stories, different myths. That is also something that a lot of people talking about. Mm. Uh, the Australian Aboriginal... Um, Complexity thinker Tyson Juncker Porter. He's talking a lot about story and what is right story and what is wrong story and the way that that mythologies are being spun into being that creates our relating to the world on fundamental levels mm. and that's why it's so important. This is also why it's catastrophic when 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 people who are narrating mythologies don't have much of a clue about. What what mythologies are, how they produce relating and so on. Yeah. Stories are um, really important m- um, vehicle for this uh, for this transformation. Mm. And um, and uh, I think it's a huge challenge. How do we find right story? How do we engage? And how do we engage stuff like our own cultural past? And what kinds of our past should we engage, and how? It is like yeah, it's yeah. a huge story, huge questions, and they need to be addressed. I think with great caution and and wisdom, actually, in order to to produce the kind of relation to the world that we uh, that 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 we will desperately need. Mm. Now, what I'm doing is that I'm trying to look at uh, pre-Christian uh, North European culture folklore these things because they have in themselves animism and animism as mentioned that is uh, fundamentally ways of relating in, a, in in a kind respectful mutual reciprocity yeah. with with the uh, the world right so creating anim- or rebirthing Animist mythologies about how we are interconnected with the world, how we are kin with the world. Some some people talk about kin making, mm. right? This is ways of of uh, healing that rupture that has been produced by modernity, modernity healing that wound that divides our interior humanity from the dead exterior world, mm. right? And so, so that and and exactly what that will look like in the future. I'm not sure exactly what it will look like. I feel like we're in a a point in
0: history where we uh, n- feel like we know what is truth and what is not truth. And we are so used to uh, acting out of this knowledge that there is something right and there is something wrong. And I think, I feel like a lot of people um, probably are hesitant to such a, an archaic idea as animism, because. You know how could you prove that the lake is alive? How can you prove? There's no proof. And so I just want to throw out there that, well, there's, no, there's also no proof that the earth is uh, only matter and that it's completely dead. So it's, it's not about proving one theory or the other. I feel like it's acting as if the environment is alive, acting <laughs> as if the lake has personhood, acting as if the rainforest um, <laughs> is alive, in fact. Acting as if, why not go all the way and act as if mm. the universe is alive? Because mm. if we do that, regardless whether it's true, it's, it doesn't matter if it's true or not true. But if we act as if it's true, we might produce a different culture than the one we have today, which has placed us on the brink of
1: extinction, basically. Mm. So that's not a totally. question. That's my little rant. But <laughs> Totally. To, and and uh, no, I, I totally follow what you're saying there. And uh, I mean, you, you could also answer what is truth. If uh, Aboriginal Australians have survived for uh, fifty thousand years or more uh, in uh, coexistence with the landscape, uh, and uh, in the last uh, uh, five hundred years uh, we have uh, destroyed the whole planet, then uh, then then who exactly has the superior worldview perception of the world? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know uh, but. Um,
0: yeah, it's all about but, what result is your thinking yeah. producing. Yeah. So judge, and, and just that from exact... that,
1: the, the, what we're doing right now is not doing so well. It, it totally is not. And also what you're saying there is the, uh, the, the point of acting towards the world as if it is personal. I mm. think that's very much to the point. Animism... Is is in fact is not very much about truth. It's not very much about what I think about the world. Mm. It's about how I'm relating to the world. Mm. And if you talk about science, what science today thinks is that about subjectivity, about personhood, is that subjectivity is in fact it's not something. It is not something according to contemporary science. It's not something. That's just inside the human mind. Mm. In fact, it is something that is inhabiting, is inhabiting our perception in a wider sense. Mm. And it's even it's inhabiting our relating. When I'm relating to you now, or we are relating with the, each other. We are producing our subjectivity as th- inhabiting that relation. Mm. Your subjectivity right now is not only inside your head. My subjectivity is not only inside my head. It's happening between us. Mm. That means that when you have an Inuit uh, population who are living their whole life in close engagement, in close relating between them and the sea that gives them life, everything they eat and they that gets them through in you know seven months long or eight months long winter where it's minus fifty degrees Celsius. Um, that that uh, that relating is inhabited by subjectivity. Now that is why the sea, scientifically speaking, from mm. at least from the point the scientific point of view that I'm working, yeah. there, are other, there are others who, who, who say hey, you're a damn hippie. <laughs> you know, but, but from the scientific point of view that I'm working, the Inuit see the Inua. Of the sea Mm. is a fully formed subjectivity, Mm. and Inuits do have technologies to engage it. So, uh, and parts of these technologies are, of course, the narratives that talk about the sea mother and how an an uh, uh, Angakok, an Inuit shaman, can enter into the sea and disentangle the, the, the seals and the, the whales and the, the animals that they live from mm. out of the hair of the, the, the sea mother and then m- make it available uh, for the Inuit, uh, the Inuit hunters, right? Yeah. So this is a mythology that shapes relating. It enables a shaman to do that and it creates relation between Inuits and that part of their landscape, landscape, their eco space that gives them life. Mm. And so this, is a, this, this narrative is a built relation. It's not an, an exterior image inside our our heads that needs to have a certain kind of alignment with an exterior image that's completely detached from that interior image that we have inside (laughs) our head. But these two things need to match each other. That's basically the modernist idea of truth. Mm. And it's useless. Mythology and what Eisenstein and and, and others, Juncker-Porter and others are talking about today, mythologies are ways of, of, of creating that relation. Mm. Such as narrating the sea as a sea mother.
0: Right. Mm.
1: All right. You right. I've
0: been checking out your YouTube videos and um, uh, you have a lot of them and they're beautiful. I encourage anybody who's uh, into this conversation and want to know more to check out your YouTube channel. Thank um, you very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you speak about uh, Ragnarok and the parallel between R- Ragnarok and the climate... Um, climate crisis we're we're in the middle of right now but before we get into that comparison let's just uh history professor uh, rune please uh, give us a little bit of a mythological understanding of what is ragnarok can you describe it so that we can begin there
1: okay yeah the ragnarok uh is um kind of an apocalyptic vision that is uh, most uh, is described uh, described the most in an an ancient Viking poem uh, called the Völuspá, which means the prophecy of the series. A völva is a kind of uh, shama, shaman, shaman, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a female shaman, and and this particular poem. <coughs> Describes how uh, actually it describes how the world is created, and it mm. describes the tree of life, and then uh, or the tree of the world, and then it describes how the the All Father Odin seeks the Völva on her vision quests and asks about the fate of the world, mm. and the Völva then describes the collapse and rebirth of of uh, of the world. Mm. So that's that, that 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 is where the word Ragnarok. Uh, comes from the, the the history behind this is that in the sixth century, which is a couple of centuries before the uh, Ragnarok myth was was uh, composed in in that form that we know today, mm-hmm. there was in fact a global cooling mm. uh, and this global cooling, uh, probably for climatic re- reasons hit Scandinavia particularly hard. Mm. So there was a a very uh, extreme collapse of human community in Scandinavia in in the 6th century. Because it basically... Like, imagine you have a subsistence agrarian community where Mm. everybody eats what they grow. And then through a a period of five years, there's bad harvest, like really bad harvest. Mm. You know, summer doesn't really show up (laughs) properly, you know. Then that, uh, I mean, there, there are, uh, I think the population of Sweden uh, was um, half, half, uh, half, yeah. reduced by 50%. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the, the, there are areas in Norway that got completely depopulated. Yeah. And you can see it in art, uh, you know, in, in artistic expression and, and so on, that, that it just collapsed. Uh, in Denmark, you see a reaction in archaeology, or possibly a reaction to this, mm. which is that all of a sudden there's a lot of gold that turns up in in the earth, and a very uh, high intensity of people giving the most expensive stuff they have, gold, mm. to the to the earth. In exactly that time, probably uh, desperate attempts to recreate that relation that mm. has apparently been broken somehow. The world has gone. Out of hand in, in climate change, mm. right? So <clears throat> the Ragnarok myth, this myth of this collapse, is probably historically it has emerged in the the uh, in in the aftermath or as a historical recollection of this uh, this uh, climate catastrophe uh, that was experienced. Throughout Northern Europe. Mm. Um, there's also, in, for instance, in Sweden, there's um, uh, a runic inscription called the Ruck Stone. Which has the most, uh, the biggest runic inscription, uh, I think, of all, uh, and is very enigmatic. And uh, I think it was last or previous years there was a a secret council of Swedish runology elders (laughs) who sat down (laughs) in secret meetings and they (laughs) uh, tried to make a new interpretation of this extremely enigmatic inscription, Mm. and they uh, they actually uh, uh, relate this this inscription to the experience of, um, mm. of, of climate change mm. that they are talking about uh, or the, 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 uh, what is being spoken about in this uh, inscription has to do with the sun darkening and these kind of things. So uh, <clears throat> so this is the cultural background to mm. uh, the Rangarok. Yep. It might actually be, it probably is, a cultural reflection mm. on climate uh, climate disruption, mm. but this also relates to uh, cultural and social things that happened in Scandinavia during the uh, illustrious Viking age <laughs> because what happened in the in the Viking age was that that uh, Scandinavians uh, moved all around uh, well not only Europe but as we all know they moved quite a lot around mm. so this was an age of uh, actually quite a lot of social change inside Scandinavia. Mm. There was um, uh, globalization, urbanization, Christianization, and and states started to sort of be uh, consolidated in Scandinavia. This would probably have been felt like a disruption of traditional knowledge patterns, that these changes emerged. And so the myth of the Ragnarok, as we know it in the Voluspar, this this poem, is probably... Uh, also informed by this environment, this milieu of social change, rather radical social change. So, um, and it is, I think, what what historians of religion call a millenarian reaction. Mm. Now, millenarian reactions, they often come in situations of social change. You see it among a lot of colonized peoples that they're, their uh their life world uh their, has been completely disrupted by col- colonialism and then uh, these religious um prophecies and reactions emerge that talk about the world as having gone completely away but we are expecting a return to an ordered world somehow mm-hmm. so uh so so the Ragnarok myth is really uh a cultural reflection on ruptured traditional knowledge as related to climate change and this is why and 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 so and so what does this myth t- say mm. well in the volace uh, it basically talks about this it's a very difficult and and weird and and beautiful and dark poem mm. actually um, but uh, what it mainly describes is a confrontation between gods who represent sort of the ordered world mm. and the jotnar uh, Jötnar, uh or giants that represents the the uh, the, the chaotic uh, mm. sphere of reality now if you look at the nordic mythology in general what you what you find is that the gods and the and the jotnar are in fact Tied to each other with all different kinds of relation. They marry each other. They, you know, have sex and make babies with each other all the time. They, uh, they descend from each other. They identify with each other. They, uh, they play games with each other. They exchange knowledge with each other. They employ each other. They, uh, they also fight each other and they fight in sometimes in chaotic. You know, destructive ways. Sometimes in more like order dueling ways, and they also cheat each other. And there's this whole complex web of of connection between the gods and the jotnar. However, in the Ragnarok myth, it is as if all these connections have been dissolved, and now they are uh, behaving towards each other like Christian angels and demons. They move into a space of absolute confrontation, mm. and that is. In in my view, like from from the animist perspective, that is the the the, the collapse of uh, animism. That is the the uh, collapse of relatedness of interconnectedness. Mm. So Ragnarok is basically a Eurodescendant or North European prophecy of what happens when inter- animist interconnectedness collapses. It is as if these people who lived in the ninth, tenth century, they already sort of intuitively sensed that their animist interconnected reality was not just a given thing; hmm. it could be compromised, it could collapse, almost as if they, you know, had a feeling that modernity was coming our way, about yeah. to rupture everything, and <clears throat> so, so, uh, so. And this means. That I think the Rock myth is an extremely powerful voice in our age. That uh, that basically is, is a part of our traditional culture. It's part of our roots culture. That basically tells us when interconnectedness uh, breaks down, then everything goes to shit. Mm. Which, which is, is what, what we were seen. experiencing yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <clears throat> and so how can we learn from this myth and if we if we take the current ragnarok of climate change and and uh, loss of biodiversity and everything else that's going on in the world social collapse and so forth mm. what can we in your view what can we learn from the animists understanding of the world and, and is there a way to bring some knowledge from the deep past into our dealings with the current crises we're facing?
1: What we should do is to try to recreate the bonds, those bonds that have been ruptured, those connections that have been uh, um, destroyed. Mm. And <clears throat> and when we look at, uh, at traditional culture, uh, both the distant past, but also more recent sort of folklore, then we see, in fact, bonds that are connecting people very strongly to the landscape and to others in the landscape. One thing, for instance, that I've done is that I've looked at an an important uh, kinship relation in in, in uh, northern Europe uh, and uh, in southern Scandinavia, very much also in England, uh, probably also further down in Europe and also north, and that's Raven. Raven totemism. Mm. Sorry, now I just introduced a new word: totemism. Kin, <laughs> being kin with others mm. I- in the land—that is basically totemism. What totemism is? Yeah. Right. Uh, the idea that we are in a kinship relation with bear or raven, or seal, or uh, pigs, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> actually. Uh, um, so the raven uh, totem mm-hmm. is found in, in a belt all around the Northern Hemisphere. You find it among um, Native Americans, you find it among a lot of different Inuit groups, uh, you find it among... Um, Siberian native groups uh, like the the Chukchi and the Koryak in Siberia and you find among northern Europeans Uh, and so this means that we can actually look at what does this this raven totemism what does it imply what does it look at among other peoples and then when we look at that then we can look at our own material of raven totemism, and then we can read it with kind of different eyes. Mm. For instance, the raven uh, has in in Denmark, uh, or sub, let me say southern Scandinavia originally, there was uh, uh, the idea that kings descended from the god Odin, who was also dis, uh, identified as the raven god. Mm. So this is in fact a, a classical totemism, a group of people descend from A specific animal, Mm. right? So, uh, but with Christianity, this particular relation became um, problematic. So it was uh, rejected, and in that rejection process, this particular animal, raven, that used to be super important to people, came to be extremely demonized. Mm. So you can find. Danish uh, folklore that talks about Raven as the apostle of Satan <laughs> <laughs> or um, that Ravens are ascribed all kinds of evil things and mm. evil characteristics and uh and the 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 kinship the connectedness between humanity and Raven is still there mm. so what I did in, in order to try to you know work with these things and bring it into uh, into play is actually I reintroduced uh Uh, totemic version of the raven flag Mm. and the raven flag was this kind of viking war banner (laughs) that's reported in some chronicles and stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, the point of this raven symbol is in fact connectedness with nature it's better understood i think when you read it with the knowledge of Heidegger Klingit Native American raven totemism uh, because then you can see it as uh, a trickster symbol of connectedness between humanity and nature. Hmm. Should I explain what a trickster is or does that? Sure, (laughs) go for it. (laughs) Tricksters are these sort of mythological jokers who uh, create connections Mm -hmm. and they Make things happen by opening possibilities and uh so Loki is a trickster mm. uh, and Raven is an important trickster mm. um, so
0: uh yeah mm. Mm. so I'd like to <coughs> <coughs> like here we are two modern mm-hmm. men communicating through very modern means here uh, mm-hmm. computers and stuff um mm-hmm. But in a previous conversation with you, we were talking about the fact that it's... That all of this um, animist, animistic culture is not... I mean, it seems like something that's very, 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 very deeply hidden uh, in our DNA and possibly doesn't exist anymore. But you talked about it, like the modernism, as more of a sort of a thin veneer uh, that's just very recent. Can you see if you can... like? bring us back into connection a little bit more with the uh, with this yeah. deep past that we've been talking about today.
1: Yeah, when when you take the animist perspective on our own culture, mm. then it is as if you find these very deep things that have probably ancient roots. But fuck that, you know. The, the point isn't so much that it's ancient. The point is that it relates to the space that we're in, and that we that we are uh, that that it's that kind of culture. And you, I think, you find that very much. On it, it is as if it's just under the surface in in, in our culture. Mm. Um, if you take stuff like the way that we celebrate Christmas mm. in uh, in Northern Europe, then you find that that. Uh, Christmas or Yule was, uh, in the pre-Christian world and throughout folkloric tradition, it was a way of relating to the changing cycles of light. Mm. Uh, And these kind of ways of relating, they just keep being there. Uh, So, uh, for instance, uh, traditions of bringing light, carrying light, these kind of things uh that uh, candles lighting candles in specific kind of ceremonial ways or mm. uh carrying torches into town or carrying little stars with candles inside it or mm. uh carrying candles in Santa Lucia processions and all these things mm. that thing about bringing light or using light in ceremonial ways that is just something that people are constantly reinventing mm. in, in, in new ways, and some of the ways that we're uh, that we're doing this stuff is th- they they are, and this is typical of animism. They can be incredibly recent yet incredibly old at the same time. Like in Denmark, we have a uh, Santa Lucia. We adopted that from uh, from Sweden. Mm. Um, and, and it looks, you know, these Santa Lucia processions, they look all medieval and stuff. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, you think, oh, that's probably something it did like since the 1300s or something. Mm-hmm. Totally not. It came to Denmark in, in the uh, during the Second World War mm. and as, as a nationalist manifestation. A lot of the, the, the Christmas traditions that we have in Denmark, uh, actually, we took a lot f- from Sweden and we took it in very recent time. Mm. Uh, and in Sweden... <clears throat> Santa Lucia is a little bit older. Hmm. It it got its its uh, uh, contemporary form in like the late 19th century as a sort of a Protestant nationalist uh, kind of uh, cleanup of former traditions called the Lusser, <clears throat> the Fad. Hmm. and these were kind of wild processions where people would be trance. Uh, Gendering—I'm not sure if that's the right word—but they would, men would wear uh, women's clothes, mm. and there would be transgressive uh, sexual behavior. The uh, the woman who would embody the uh, bruden, mm. the looser bride, she would, she could almost have a stain on her honor because it mm. was such a like such a sexually charged position, mm. and these uh, processions uh, would would bring light or uh, or. Get shit faced, drunk, or whatever in in the looser night, Mm. which was considered the longest night of the year, the solstice. Mm. It was called the looser, long night. Mm. Now, so, uh, and that is perhaps, now we're perhaps in the 19th century. These kind of performances go far far back in time and they have different shapes and they're different figures and and they're often interchanging and if you go all the way back to pre-christian time times perhaps it was some of these goddesses like uh there's a goddess they have in in germany called uh, Frau Holle or Holda, which is a kind of a dark winter goddess or mm. magical winter goddess who, who is enacted also with masks and everything about that time. The Swedish Luse is kind of part of that complex of dark mm. winter goddesses. You see, the, the contemporary Santa Lucia that we have is very contemporary yet, and it's bringing light like people have probably always done and like people is doing in very different, very transformational ways but it's actually a part of very old traditions that are about relating like not thinking about or mm. having a truth-based mm. knowledge about but relating to the changes of light that define our life in our landscape like we can look at our culture from an animist perspective mm. and then we are we are sort of seeing what animist relation makings that are actually going on in them. Mm. And that also means that when we're looking at that, then we can re-engage those things, not as this sort of antiquarian thing. Oh, now we need to all wear like, you know, straw, you will go masks and play violins and wear clogs and, 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 and play that we're living in the 19th century. No, the point is that when we are looking at these uh, the animist logic that is inside these traditions, then we can change them and we can work with them. And then, mate, we're working with the deep um, in the deep motor in our culture. Mm. When I'm talking about, for instance, carnivalesque behavior and, you know, erotic behavior in the streets and all these things, people are gonna recognize it, you know, because we already do it at New Year's Eve, mm. which is basically part of the same sort of transitional dark time of year mm. ritual process. And in uh, we also do it in, uh, well, in Denmark, not so much uh, around Christmas Eve. Uh, that's not carnivalesque at all. It's extremely boring and bourgeois. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in uh, but uh, we have something called Yule, uh, Julefrokost or Yule Dinner, mm. uh, which is typically uh, colleagues at the work, who meet at the workplace. Mm. And that's always like People take 500, you know, photocopies of their own butt when they place <laughs> it on the copying machine and, and they, you know, have sex with the people they weren't really supposed to have sex with and, and get far, far, far too drunk and all that stuff. So, and so this is act, and this that sounds kind of, like a Danish film. I can, <laughs> I can it see sound, it. It does sound like, <laughs> like a Danish a film. Thomas Winterberg, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <By> Lars <laughs> von Trier kind of stuff. Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but that kind of behavior is, in many ways, closer to the original traditional Yule celebration. Mm. Or, no, let me not say closer to, because there were also parts of traditional Yule celebrations that were very sort of devotional and uh, almost sacramental. Mm. A normal Yule dinner uh, at a Norwegian farm in the countryside in the 19th century would have been very Very tightly ritualized, Mm. very sort of uh, devotional, kind of devotional—not—not—not in a Christian sense, but—but I was—I'm looking for the word now. Solemn, a very solemn Mm. occasion, Uh, and um, so so that would have also been there, but um, but uh, I'm just starting with the fun stuff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So we're getting a little bit towards the end. Uh, of of our allotted time Uh, but I I want to finish up with um, something slightly problematic perhaps, I don't know Mm -hmm. maybe not, who knows Um, but I I feel like there's a uh, dichotomy between uh, like indigenous peoples and the rest of us kind of thing where sometimes like on my best days when I'm not overthinking things I feel a connection I, like I feel like you know I'm indigenous too and then I almost feel like ooh th- I can't say that out loud that's being you know sacrilegious or or, or that, that's not the politically correct thing to, to say but I still feel it sometimes when I connect in a certain way to to the land or to to place and, and I just f- feel and not think so much um, mm. but maybe you could talk a little bit about um yeah uh, like those of us who are not uh who cannot traditionally label ourselves uh indigenous and do we have the right to feel indigenous I and mean, can you just like dwell over mm-hmm. the word a little bit and, and get us into that space a little
1: bit yeah yeah cool let me just think how to how to start this rant here <laughs> uh, the um I know I'm making trouble here at the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, to me the important thing about the, the word indigenous is that it has a political importance for people who ha- peoples who have been marginalised by uh, colonisation uh, and uh, post-colonial continued uh, power asymmetries. Mm. Right? Yeah. When Sami people in northern Sweden they use the word indigenous, then they are using it to claim legitimacy uh, for. Incredibly urgently important (laughs) projects for them, which is stuff like cultural rights uh, and land rights, hunting rights, Mm. all these things. So, uh, for instance, uh, and and, and this is, when I say urgently important, I mean urgently important. Mm. The southern Sámi language is a threatened language it is difficult for them to uphold their own language because they have been marginalized so much by a dominating state. Mm. And they need that label indigenous and the legitimacy that goes with that label to claim that. I guess that's what Uh, I
0: feel when I feel like I I cannot use this word, but I still can feel something that connects me to
1: to land and place And, and culture. But I also think that, like, we can take that word indigenous and then we can reserve that to those people, mm. but that does not mean that we cannot um, think in similar terms in order to pro- about ourselves to produce land connectedness. Mm. Like you and I, we are both first nations in the land where we live. We are. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and there is also something about um, uh, uh, land connectedness that if you were born in a specific land mm. then you are i would say from an animist perspective you're part of that that space mm. also if your parents came from syria or palestine mm. you're part of that th- that space and you are in a sense uh, a legitimate participant in that in that space you know mm. <laughs> and uh, and of course uh, there are also issues of settla- settlers and 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 so on and 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 uh, and i think it's it's extremely important to maintain the the um uh kind of the, the the respect and appreciation for indigenous people's rights and their their rights to land and culture and so on mm. uh but when we, as majority populations, think about ourselves, I think we can we can think with with other terms, and I I prefer thinking with the, the word traditional. When, for instance, I'm talking about Nordic animism, mm. I'm I'm talking about traditional knowledge, traditional Euro-descended knowledge, mm. traditional majority knowledge. Mm. Now that means. The same as saying indigenous knowledge. Essentially, it means the same, but it just does not imply colonization and marginalization. Mm. Uh, And I think it's important to also not... uh, Sometimes there's a little bit of a coquetry, coquetry, (laughs) you know, about Mm. uh, being... Colonized, and and sometimes you see Euro descendants, or white people talk about how the Romans colonized everything, uh, mm. and so on, and and so now we can victimize ourselves about the fact mm. that Romans were colonizing England you know, two thousand years ago, uh, mm. and uh, I I I think we should uh, be a little bit careful with these uh, the when we start these victimizing uh, narratives about ourselves as, uh, as white people. Also white people who've been colonized by other states. You know, if you are mm. Cornish or uh, uh, Basque, then, then it, yeah. y- your, your land has actually been colonized. But you know, as a general rule, uh, I think we should mm. be a little bit careful about that. And, mm. But when we think with traditionalism, and traditional, instead of indigenous and indigeneity, mm. then we can basically engage the exactly the same kind of forms of knowledge, mm. uh, the same forms of, of animism, the same forms of land connectedness, the same forms of knowledge processes as indigenous because people. The, 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 it just does not imply colonization. And that is what I think we should. Uh, and this is also why we can, I think legitimately, without moving into spaces of problematic uh, cultural appropriation, we can learn from indigenous thinking because they are, in mm. fact, some of the front runners of mm. um, <clears throat> uh, bringing animist thinking uh, into, for instance, uh, scholarship and cultural self-reflection, cultural processes in our age. So a guy like Tyson, Juncker Porter, Robin Kimmerer in uh, in uh, North America and others, they are uh, they're introducing uh, I think they're going to be the 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 peak thinkers, the front thinkers of this cultural um, uh, transformation that we're entering right now. And it's important, <clears throat> it's extremely important that we that we don't let our um, reverence for uh, their uh, uh, their their plight and their the the hardship that they've been through that we don't let that move us into sort of a non-touch space where we're not allowed to, to learn from them. Mm. I think that in, in an inverted way, that's almost kind of upholding, exotifying of them, secluding them from influence. Mm. As majority populations, we have to, to bring that in, in and b- like, I'm doing, well, we have to do, everybody has to do what I'm doing, <laughs> to, to, to bring these perspectives uh, into thinking and, and reflecting on, on our own culture, because then we, can, then, then, then we can, well, become indigenous, now I don't use the word indigenous, but uh, become <laughs> traditionalized. We can re-traditionalize ourselves, and the word traditional. I think is, 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 is mu- I, I like it much better than I like indigenous because it, it has connotations that are so different from what people think it means. People think it means kind of static and conservative and, and uh, reactionary, but in fact, it means the opposite, tradition. It comes from, from the Latin word tradio, which means to bring along something. But that is a, mm. that is a transformational process. Tradition is something that's ever changing well i feel like this um
0: hour or so uh, w- has opened a lot of doors and um uh, and we could probably there's probably about 10 doors we could go into and do another hour in each room um but we won't because our time is up and we'll just leave those doors open and and see what what lands um after um i i know that i will be listening again to this and 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 just leaving those doors open for a while and and see what what's to emerge. Cool. Thank you so much. Well, thank
1: you very much for, for having me. having been here. Yeah. <laughs> it was super nice <laughs> to chat with you, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hope that we will cross paths in person. This conversation took place over the computer. Totally. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to hug you at some yeah, point yeah. in real life. Give me a, give me a
1: call if you uh, if you drop by Copenhagen, We'll have a beer.
0: We'll have a beer. And we'll photocopy our butts together. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> for no, no. sure. For sure. <laughs> Take care, brother. Take care, man.
0: Campfire Stories and the Campfire Podcast are community-supported endeavors, meaning that they would not exist without our supporters. We humbly accept your monthly or one-time donations. To become a monthly donor, please visit patreon.com slash Matthias Olson, M-A-T-T-I-A-S-O-L-S-S-O-N. If you prefer to make a one-time donation, please visit campfire-stories.org boxoffice. Thank you so much, and until the next time.